you know, I'm going to take your shit. I'm going to tell you what to think. I'm going to tell you how to act. I'm going to tell you what's misinformation, what's truth, what's disinformation. Oh, and by the way, you're welcome because it's for your betterment. It's just insulting. At least the Vikings weren't insulting you and telling you it was a better way of life. They were telling you this is, uh, you know, the strong survive, so to speak. But Marxism is inherently not just dishonest. It's it's a fraudulent ruse that in its heart is disingenuine. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Chase Perkins, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Robert, great to see you, man. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Um, the last episode we did, absolutely crushed. Uh, I think the title was The End of Digital Tyranny. And we went into some very substantive discussion about the nature of tyranny and um, the hope for the digital age as kind of a resolution to many, I guess at this point, age-old problems we've been dealing with. Um, and today, oh, first of all, just by way of quick introduction, you are the founder of impervious.ai. We'll talk a little bit about what you guys do towards the end. And then you're also a data privacy attorney. And so the, the focus of today's show is the outline you put together is titled The Great Escape, Identifying and Exiting Modern Marxism. Yes. Um, we might also say this is a discussion centered on the the promise of digital technology to end cultural Marxism or to at least um, 
imprint the the values like like the, the values that western civilization was built on to imprint those into digital reality right in a way that's unbreakable um incorruptible by politics and such so yeah. where should we start this very wide-ranging and in-depth discussion sure uh just to piggyback on uh, what you just said before we get into it yeah founder of impervious um but i'm also digital privacy attorney um or data privacy attorney and constitutional enthusiast and that's what you were just mentioning is cryptographic digital protocols are really the finest uh and probably the last resort um to encode our values and principles into our digital and conversely physical world. And that's why they're one the same. It's not just speaking about abstract notions to pat yourself on the back and justify a mission. It's these are the tools which will further one way or the other or determine the lack of what we have uh, and can do in the future, both physically and digitally. So um, yeah, jumping right in. Thanks for the overview of the, the outline. <clears throat> Identifying and exiting uh, modern Marxism so I like to say the greatest trick the devil ever played wasn't convincing the world he didn't exist. It was tricking otherwise rational people to debate communism on economic merit, mm. right? It's it's a red herring. Uh, it's a Trojan horse or a backdoor zero day for much more pernicious and insidious uh, form of not just government, but um, basically what Marxism actually taught, despite what you may have learned at school, was that there is always an existential crisis that society at any given time may accept as sufficient uh, or su uh, sufficient justification to circumvent, undermine, undo, uh, or uh, corrode agreed to agreed upon consensus. So, from climate change to COVID to justification for suppression of freedom of expression with disinformation, uh, any current thing. If it's profound enough, and if you can push the narrative and capture the consciousness of society sufficiently, if only for a fleeting period of time, right? Uh, you don't have to change the system or persuade. You can corrupt otherwise sound systems and force it upon other people under, you know, media or, or mass, um, you know, collective uh, hysteria. So, of course, if you refuse to participate. Uh, or acknowledge the premise of a collective hysteria or um, uh, existential crisis, they'll use other methods to deprive it, uh, your body, your mind, your family. Um, and so, yeah, that's really the crux of it is that economic reappropriation is like the least burdensome hurdle to justify. If you can already take people's stuff, I mean, sorry, if you can take someone's life, if you can uh, displace them if you can impose your will upon them, determine what they can say and do, you know, and, and shoot you in the face. What they do with your wallet afterwards is arbitrary. Yeah, it's, it's so important. Um, and I always love Hoppe's definitions of communism, socialism, and capitalism because they ground out in private property. And that's really. You know, the preservation of life, liberty, and property is all that we want any government to provide. Like it's the exclusive philosophical right. scope of government. And so Hoppe defines communism and Marx as well, right, as the institutionalized abolition of private property. 
So you can't keep what you earn, right? You cannot own anything. The state owns everything and distributes it at its own leisure or its own will. Exactly. Socialism, per Hoppe, is defined as the institutionalized policy of aggression against private property. So this would be taxation, inflation, outright confiscation, all of these things that actually aggress against the individual's right to own anything. And then finally, Hoppe defines capitalism as the institutionalized policy of respect for private property and consensual transfers of private property by contract. So like this is the spectrum, right? There's communism mm -hmm. where nobody owns anything, the state owns everything. There's capitalism where everything's privately, individually owned. And socialism is the spectrum in between to like, to what extent is private property being institutionally aggressed against via taxation, inflation, regulation, confiscation? And I, I, think, I think it's, I think it's interesting, right? There's, there's a, you mentioned the word consensus. There's an interesting link here, like an etymological link between consensus and consent. You can't exactly. really have a genuine social consensus unless you actually poll the audience, right? And you have consent from all participants. Yeah. And I think the underlying thread that you just touched on is the um, end of self-determination. Yes. 100%. This, you know, and you, if the state is either recognizing private property, private commerce, uh, the individual, or it's dictating it. Uh -huh. And so these are, um, these really ultimately are, and we'll get into it a little bit later, where when we talk about identifying modern Marxism, and it's un oftentimes under the guise of interest balancing tests, where if you can find a sufficient reason to corrode, it, it can obtain the same thing, right? 100%. And I think it's also useful here to point out the Marxist roots of central banking. Now, this is uh, Marx's 1848 Manifesto of the Communist Party, measure number five, basically says that for communism or Marxism to work, the state has to have an exclusive monopoly on cash and credit. And this is, you know, in my opinion, probably the primary violator of private property in the modern world, mm -hmm. right? the, the legal monopoly on money printing, which is equivalent to violating private property. This is something that I, I really hope people that listen to the show can take away like money printing equals theft money printing equals violation of private property it's not very intuitive because people you know think oh we don't have enough money let's print some more money but there's always this reallocation of wealth from savers to the state or to the central bank shareholders when the yep. printing and money occurs and that's how Karl Marx you know saw it he was a failed economist and a terrible capitalist in the sense that he was lousy uh, and frustrated by his lack of ability to accumulate capital. And by proxy, he saw his relative insignificance and lack of power. Um, and he therefore, you know, he was a journalist and essentially a fiction uh, writer. And he saw the his only path to influence was uh, circumventing and justifying um, eradicating both private property and seizure of it. And so it's only, it's, a, it's this quasi-religious uh, profitization where it's almost like if you were attributing political economist or political philosopher to Karl Marx, it's akin to reading Dianetics, the foundation of Scientology, and referring to L. Ron Hubbard um, as a physicist 
it's fantastical, but nonetheless, like wishful thinking is easier to follow than critical thinking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned 1848, um, and it's been used to justify social, political, and economic horror ever since 175 years and counting, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. But who's determining the need or ability? That, yeah, that's arbitrary and subjective. Yeah, and it, it implies a central arbiter or ruler, right? That we're no longer operating under any level playing field or any sense of equality in the eyes of the law. There's no code that's superordinate that we're all following. We're following the dictates of a group, right? The state. And and yeah. And one last thing I really like to emphasize here, uh, because private property is a bit abstract for some people, but you could also interpret it as just private ownership, right? The ability to keep what you earn, right? You you went out, you made the thing, or you traded, you traded the thing you made for something someone else made in a consensual exchange. Like this is justice, right? This is if justice means people getting what they deserve. Mm-hmm. Private property is people keeping what they earn, what they right, rightfully earn or trade to acquire. So when we say that communism is the abolition of private property, socialism is aggression against private property, these are inherently unjust, right? They are they are based on theft, and by extension, deception, right? That this narrative has right. to be pushed into people's mind to justify the unjustness of stealing from people. And that's really what it's all about. And one of the, you said it exactly right. And one of the most pernicious components is they treat it as some type of objective uh, rule of nature or like, you know, law of physics where it requires you to buy into the premise. And so I think one of the calls to action for this podcast and like our, both of our, our shared mission and plight in life is rejecting and in, in allowing people to identify these, these insidious, uh, uh, the more insidious forms. So you can reject the premise, making it easier. You don't have to, you know, find uh, it on the edges. You reject the premise. You say that I, I those are not the basis for reality. These are not object laws of nature or physics or economics. Uh, these are arbitrary L. Ron Hubbard-esque uh, you know, fan fiction. Uh-huh. It's crazy. Yeah, that's a great great way to put it. It's like the Scientology of economics. Well, exactly. Communism. And it is disheartening to see young people today kind of picking up the mantle of Marxism as a solution. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't blame them, right? They they're they're victims of effectively a, a what 100 plus year psyop at this point. And they feel these are the victims of central banking, the victims of mm-hmm. the violation of private property. You know, the younger generation especially can't afford to buy houses, you know, wages and productivity have diverged widely since going off the gold standard, things like this. But it's important, I think, to question, as we're trying to do here, the premises of these quote unquote political or economic philosophies. Like they are rooted in theft. And if you think theft is wrong, then you are then whether you know it or not, you do not abide by, or you do not agree with communism or socialism. I think what you just said is interesting regarding kind of, I'm going to draw a parallel between Marx and this adolescent angst 
uh, feeling of helplessness, right? With the central banks and with inflation and uh, ultimately uh, the, the corrosion of, of value um, of property, uh, you know, Marx was the ultimate projectionist. The, the basis for his entire uh, Scientology of economics was uh, rooted in his own inadequacy, right? And wanting more influence. And so that is a transcendent threat. If we don't provide the tools and ability to control your mind, your property, commerce, uh, it, but most importantly, to make those decisions for yourself, self-determination, they will be imposed by others, especially those who, for whatever reason, can justify it or that's their you know, wit's end. Um, so I consider modern Marxism conquest or communism by other means, right? It's comporting kind of classic justification for conquest of nations uh, and seizure of people and assets with a more modern or contemporary, generally accepted uh, values to morality. So when you think about historically, wars of conquest uh, and the fruits of war were recognized and justified through various means, right? Dating back to at least that we know of the Roman Empire, expansion of the empire was considered by Romans as extending civilization and in turn bringing majority uh, to less develop whether it's societies or provincial uh, areas or uh, parts of the world. And for centuries following, whether it was the church or European nations in pursuit of conquest, expansion of borders uh, and empires, uh, and collection of resources, uh, there's often this in, uh, entwined equivalent moral justification of bringing civility to savages. Sometimes in terms of saving their souls, like how altruistic, but it was, you know, it's in the the eye of those who seek to impose. And it's not that different. In fact, I would say it's it's one for one. And we'll go, we'll talk about deco uh, decolonialization and some of the ironies and contradictions because uh, they don't realize these are, it's just the contemporary equivalent of what nation states and the church and Europe and at least back to the Roman Empire, uh, nations have done and they comport it with a modern sense of contemporary value. So, you know, it wasn't until 1932 um, that the U.S. attempted uh, to introduce the League of Nations, this idea of uh, stopping recognition of wars of conquest. Um, and then it was later adopted in 1949 um, by the U.N., post-World War II, right, after the borders have been determined, right, by the winners, mm -hmm. by allies, that we should not recognize territorial conquest by aggressive war. So this is really, really critical. I think one of the primary reasons why every single country states a grievance um, since 1949, uh, prior to an invasion or uh, defensive act, it's because they have to claim, hey, this is, we're furthering historical claim. We're fixing a grievance or it's an act of defense because it fell out of vogue in 1949 to just say, well, we're taking it because we can. Mm -hmm. It's not an act of aggression, right? We're remediating historical, remediating historical grievances. Um, and that's precisely what Marxism has been doing. Yeah. To, before I reply to that specific point there, I just want to reemphasize that there's kind of a brutal irony here with Marx, right? That he was seeking to accumulate more capital for himself, 
but pushing this statist ideology that you know it should all be owned by the state and the state knows better than everyone else i think he all just just to also emphasize his ineptitude in relation to economics i'm pretty no, sure he said yeah. that technology did not increase productivity right it was something you're saying right that <laughs> he, had, he, had, he had the economic uh you know technological insight of a pheasant yeah right he uh it's much easier to ensure every time every everything is reframed in the victim exploiter exploitee paradigm yes than to actually discuss uh production uh and uh any any actual basic free market or just economic ideas it's just hey there's exploited and there's exploitees but really again that's just a red herring i i feel where um and we'll talk about this you know we'll get into it later but you know the algorithm for modern marxism is identify uh, a victim status so victim identification right and then reframe and in 1848 it was uh you know the proletariat uh the proletariat is being uh, exploited by managers and owners of uh, companies and those that control labor. Um, gross simplification and uh, just wrong objectively, but that's what we do now. So you say, hey, who's a victim? Identify who's the exploiter, exploiter, exploitee, and everyone who doesn't have what's viewed as if not equitable, but desired outcomes is the victim and therefore justified in pursuing uh aspects of their grievances um yeah you know it's really go ahead sorry to jump in but um this entire worldview of marx where he's decomposing things and groups of people into classes right the exploiter Mm -hmm. and the exploited you could also say that it's just a very low resolution depiction of reality, right? It's it's obviously arbitrary when we assign one group of people to a group. Like, where do you actually circumscribe the lines? Um, and, you know, when you compare this to the Austrian economic school of thought, that it's, it's individuals that act, right? You have to think in terms of individuals. You can't think in terms of just these arbitrarily circumscribed classes. This feeds the, that falsehood, right? That there are, there is some indivisible, coherent aggregate, right? The exploiters that just move to exploit the exploited. And Mises's more nuanced point would be like, actually, no. You know, sometimes you're you're wearing the hat of a capitalist. Sometimes you're wearing the hat of a employee or an employer, right? You might you could be playing many different exactly. roles in your life at any point, and that's the higher resolution depiction of reality, and that's. I think it highlights the irrationality of, of Marxism in general. And um, just to reply to something you said earlier, this idea that I guess started in ancient Rome, but it's probably even older than that, right? That the For sure. Violent- Alexander the Great, I mean, yeah, they've always been justified. Yeah, the, the idea that violent conquest is like expanding civilization or bringing civilization to savages that's another one of these class ideologies, right? We are the civilized. They are the savages. We mm-hmm. need to go out and conquer and pillage to give them. It's like you're and justifying. You're yes. You're justifying yeah. the violence and theft as a solution to the victim's problems, which is could not be further from the truth, right? You're victimizing people. And um, 
you know, in ancient Rome specifically, I always like to mention this. I think the the population of ancient Rome was like 400,000 mm. and 320,000 of those were slaves, right? So this is a, a society where s- explicit slavery was normalized, right? It wasn't even seen to be a problem. It's like to own, everyone owns slaves. It's like owning a, a, a washing machine, right? Like it, there was no moral scruple about it there's, whatsoever. There was a binary dichotomy. There was the citizen mm-hmm. and then there was lesser than. I guess there are components too, but like, there were the elite and the citizens and the, yes. yeah, the other. Yeah, which is again, just disregarding the reality of the individual, right? That individuals mm-hmm. think and plan and act. Um, they're not, you know, slaves and slave owners. There's not, there's not these classes. And I think that, I mean, when I hear the ethos of American imperialism today, right? Like we're spreading democracy to the world. I hear echoes of that same notion, right? That there are savages, uncivilized, Mm -hmm. undemocratic hordes in the world that the U.S. government needs to go drop bombs on to bring them democracy. And it's it's just a weird, it's a strange way to interpret the world. But I think there are linkages, right? That we, even the the zeitgeist of today, uh, well, of some, American exceptionalism, et cetera, like it's rooted in this older, ideology of, of we are the civilized and they are the savages and we need to conquer them to save them. Yeah. And you could almost argue that the, uh, the modern like kind of foreign policy justification for the United States is, is a little tone deaf and, uh, and, and disingenuous, right? The spreading democracy. No one actually thought we were, you'd have to be considerably naive to think you're spreading uh, you know, democracy or some sense of a uh, uh, flourishing republic to Afghanistan or Iraq in their in the conditions of you know the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, it was easier to say that than to state the obvious, which is we are furthering our interests there in the way, um, and they try. You know, at first there was a, uh, a whatever the equivalent of a modern justification is right. There was a bloodlust post two thousand one. We don't have to get into all of it. But we were looking for uh, reassurance, and the best way to reassure and feel in control is to project that upon others, right? And whether it is barbarians at the gate, um, you know, uh, during Rome, or you know, whether when they went to Germany and and what become England, um, you know, projecting onto the provinces gave a sense of not just manifest destiny, but of course security. You create a buffer, right? Mm-hmm. There are fewer and fewer enemies between you and uh, the capital or Rome. Right. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, I I guess it's part of human evolution. So it's clearly wrong in any modern moral sense, right, to steal mm-hmm. and to kill. But it's like we almost had to go through this process to learn about well, its wrongness. You know, you know, so I think it's interesting. The... Uh, the moral justifications, I think they're, they're farcical when it comes to Marxism and communism. There is almost the Viking, the Scandinavian uh, mentality. They didn't pretend that they're furthering you. They saw they saw it, uh, their conquest, Viking conquest, for uh, as a zero-sum game, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we are seeking fortune, expansion of our dominion, uh, and uh, you know they didn't they didn't pretend. That they were bettering 
those that uh, were on the receiving end. And that, and that was accepted within their society. Um, and I think that's a more honest assessment than saying like, you know, I'm going to take your shit, your shit. I'm going to tell you what to think. I'm going to tell you how to act. I'm going to tell you what's misinformation, what's truth, what's disinformation. Oh, and by the way, you're welcome because it's for your betterment. It's just insulting. At least the Vikings weren't insulting you and telling you it was a better way of life. They were telling you this is, uh, you know, the strong survive, so to speak. Uh, and I think that these these false narratives, when you can when you can see, you know, I think it's imperative to see with clarity, right? We were talking about whether it's U.S. foreign policy or modern or future uh, foreign policy or domestic and economic policy. See it for what it is, and then you can decipher it. But Marxism is inherently not just dishonest; it's it's a fraudulent ruse that in its heart is disingenuine mm-hmm. um and it's furthering that like to go full circle at the beginning what marxism modern marxism's actually furthering is that there is always an existential crisis to which you can use to justify eroding systems circumventing finding exceptions exemptions uh creating mass hysteria we see this with climate change we see this uh, with misinformation, disinformation, with COVID policy. So a good example is there is no exception uh, for freedom of assembly and freedom of expression. And during COVID, we invented those. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't do that you know, during either World War, but here we are and here we were. And uh, there's no public health exemption. It's made for hard times. And so when we talk about uh cryptographically secure protocols. We talk about Bitcoin, we talk about Nostr. We can circle back to that, but this is one and the same. We go, if you can make it mathematically, objectively sound, the antithesis of Marx, instead of a subjective L. Ron Hubbard uh, uh, call to action, you could actually say objectively, here are the rules, here's the consensus that's agreed upon, here's what's recognized. you don't have to worry about what in five and 10 or 20 or 50 years is in vogue. It's not going to corrupt something that's mathematically geographically secure. And sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I'm saying that's the crux of it. No, it's an excellent point. And the, the term you're using in vogue, I think is really important. Um, Mises said something to the effect that like modern freedom is the resistance to the despotism of public opinion. Hmm. So these false narratives, right? They're they're really intended to manufacture consent, right? To to win public opinion for war and conquest. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 more insidious than the Viking ethos you're saying, where they're like, we just go and conquer to expand, right? There's no lie substantiating that. They just say it how it is. But Marxism is more like we're doing this for your own good, and um, yeah, it's 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 a religious conquest uh, with the deprivation of of divinity, right? It's yeah. saying this is for the greater good, and then they just drop the the modern, uh, less accepted component. It's the same yes, yeah. So it's like you're putting a moral camouflage on this inherently territorial impulse, even right where humans are. Well, we're animals, right? We, we we are a territorial species. We seek to expand our dominion. 
that's that's the truth that's reality but then to put this layer of deception on top of it is just extra insidious because now you're you're winning public opinion to go into battle to do this moral thing that's not real right um spread democracy or bring civility to savages whatever it may be and in those times of crisis that's when the exceptions start to come out, right? This is um, exactly you know, creating exceptions to the rule of law, creating exceptions to private property. And this gets to the root of sovereignty itself, which I think as Carl Schmidt said, sovereign is he who decides the exception. So mm. what we're talking about with Bitcoin, with Noster, these other cryptographic protocols that are incorruptible and unchangeable uh, under any political environment, that's what gives sovereignty to individuals, right? Because there's no individual or group that can decide exceptions to Bitcoin, for instance. There's no one exactly. that can decide exceptions to uh, to Noster, presumably as well. I don't know as much about Noster, but and I think this it sort of like breaks the cycle, maybe because as mm-hmm. you were saying earlier, all we could look back through history and you'll always find some past violent conquest to justify or warrant some future retaliatory violent conquest, right? That's just, if you trace it back, people, we've been engaged in these cycles of- State your historical grievance proceed, yeah. Yeah, it's like Rene Girard's theory of mimetic violence, right? We've just been imitating one another over and over and over. And so you'll never, you'll never solve war and conquest by doing that because you'll always have an excuse for future war and conquest right this, it will always go away. and this devolves into like Hammurabi's code right an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind so we need something to break that cycle something to interrupt that pattern of imitation and you know there's the Christic solution was turning the other cheek right when your enemy strikes you turn and give him your other cheek but that's not enough right it's not an economic incentive it's just a moral um, code or a moral impetus perhaps and so I think this is where Bitcoin's very interesting yeah as they were talking about actually reducing the profitability of violence right mm-hmm. if you re-ran human history and people had digital gold right presumably they could have escaped more effectively with uh, with their economic energy or their purchasing power than they could just owning physical forms of wealth. Yes. And so it, this is like, it's a massive paradigm change. And that's, I think that is the hope of the digital age, right? Is that we can build these incorruptible tools to disincentivize ourselves from repeating these patterns of mimetic vengeance. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, 1, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. 
That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code Bitcoin23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. You know, I was I was fortunate enough to build on that last point. Um Justice Scalia taught my separation of uh, powers uh, course at law school. And he had said, I, re I remember the specific lecture where he had said, the function of the constitution is to protect the minority from the tyranny of the majority. Mm. So when we talk about cryptographic protocols, people oftentimes think of, and this is distinct, of course, with the American jurisprudence and our, and our system versus other quote, d uh, democratic, uh, uh, states, um, it's not just majority rules. It's here are the limitations on power, both of the uh, limitations, uh, explicit restrictions and limitations on power and processes on the government. And then here are the rec uh, here are the recognized uh, values and rights of the individual, regardless of the collective majority's will or wishes. And the U.S. has fallen short, of course, in our own history of that. Um, but it's it's fundamentally different uh, than you know. You look at in Germany, right? It, it is the will of of the of the majority. Uh, it's like a militant democracy. And when I think about cryptographic protocols, uh, when I think about securing consensus or data in perpetuity. And that's the key word is perpetuity. Mm -hmm. uh, I think of uh, the function of a constitution is to protect the minority from the tyranny of the majority. Mm -hmm. And this is the closest we've come, I think, to a pure sense of uh, a democratic republic or a constitutional republic, I should say, where we recognize the values. We recognize both these rights, whether the property rights, individual rights, the right to self-determination, the founding. It goes all the way back to the, you know, pre the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And then we include that. We say now, obviously, day to day, we don't know what the future is going to look like. Uh, democracy and consensus will be allowed for X, Y, and Z. But here's what's off, you know, here's what here's what's out of bounds. Here's what's predetermined, and everyone's going to be making decisions on. And the function of the, the Constitution is to ensure those things are enshrined in perpetuity. And what uh, both historical and modern Marxism has clung to very effectively, both in higher education uh, and otherwise, is find an existential crisis, find an exception, find an exemption, and squeeze. And, you know, uh, performance theater is very much uh, in vogue. We have literal children right acting out mm -hmm. and 
uh, what are we really teaching? People are, people are intelligent. They see between the lines and they say, okay, look, what we're actually teaching is stop your feet enough. You don't have to have rational, rational discourse. You don't have to persuade. You just have to capture the fleeting attention of the masses and impose your will or undermine systems. Um, now, how are you supposed to plan for the future, whether it's you know your family or society? Um, if you don't know if what you secure, you think about Bitcoin, you cryptographically secure it, right? You take it offline, that's yours in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with information. If you can cryptographically secure who controls routes and stores information, you can ensure that in the future, um, you know, they always say, oh, the, the victor rewrites history. Well, guess what? Um, you can cryptographically secure and ensure that the recipient receives the message as intended by the sender or the drafter of those messages. And nothing puts you know me more at ease thing of the future when I to think about there are mechanisms to encode because with this we'll see where where cultural Marxism leads in the US and in the West. Um, but they keep finding exceptions. And we'll talk about uh, a little bit later interest balancing. Yeah. And the rule of law society there. Yeah, I've got to go back to your your legal professor's quote on the mm -hmm. purpose of a constitution, right? As uh, a tool for protecting the the minority from the tyranny of the majority. This really highlights, I guess, the the oxymoron that we're now in, right? That we now consider the United States to be a democracy, and although it was originally founded as a constitutional republic, and a democracy is the tyranny of the majority, right? Whatever the 51% mm -hmm. vote gets imposed on the 49%. And that's, it's impossible that, that you can't, I don't know, status democracy is not the pinnacle of human governance, right? This It's another lie we're being sold. A true democracy would be a free market, right? Where each person is right. deciding for themselves, $1 equals one vote. And um, the constitution itself to like, or, you know, I think as you've said that the constitution we write, where we found a state and we say, these are the parameters which the state cannot break, right? It must honor the life, liberty, and property of the individual, right? Ideally, that's kind of an idea. They have to recognize and enforce those yes. rights. The problem, of course, with that is that these are just scribbles on a piece of paper. Yeah. Right? And future tyrants, future status, they'll find exceptions, they'll engineer crises to create exceptions. Right. This is a very pertinent point. Uh, you know, Scalia, just Scalia also said in the class, he goes, look, uh, the USSR had a uh, possibly better or more expansive constitution as far as they had more enumerated protections. And we went on and on and on, hundreds, thousands. It was, but they were all parchment guarantees. Mm -hmm. There was no separation of powers. There was no enforcement mechanism. Uh, there was no kitten. Uh, like the equivalent of a constitutional consensus, uh, they were just lists. They were political gestures in the wind. It didn't mean anything. Yes. And this is the same thing. You need a combination of legal and technical mechanisms to further liberty. And like you're saying, like, you know, there's nothing inherently, or I'm paraphrasing my, my perspective on it, there's nothing like inherently moral, um, morally superior to like majority rules like a 51% vote that that can be arbitrary it can be anything it's that in combination with recognized principles and limitations and processes you go okay cool 
We know what the rules are. We know how to enforce them. We know what will happen if you try. I don't care. And when you have those protections, so we we have skewed the incentive structure for for civil discourse, you know, in the United States and the West writ large, where if you knew that no one could take your stuff, no one could suppress you, no one could uh, limit your free freedom of expression and discourse, um, you would feel less threatened. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would you would be like, look, I don't care what your opinion is, it's not going to change anything, or it's not going to affect me in a way that I don't consent to. And that's like a terrific irony, right? When we were talking about contradictions of the modern, not just left, really talking about Marxism, um, where they really seek to deprive parties of consent and also the agreed upon consensus. So it's like, we can get a room and you want to have a meeting, whether it's local or national or whatever, and try to find a resolution for whatever issue, uh, you know, as long as you know what's off the table and you recognize um, those values, you're going to feel less threatened. Maybe you, you, you won't get your preferred policy preference, but everything won't be an existential crisis. And that's what they're doing is they're imposing these things under threat mm-hmm. of if you don't. You know, they either make outrageous claims like in five years, the world will, you know, the oceans will rise, you know, in five years, 10 years. It's always, it's like, it's like general or, you know, general AI where it's, it's always 20 years out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But realistically, they seek to impose it one way or the other or under the psychological threat of, and it forced you to, to refute it. But if you go, look, I reject the premise. I don't care. I mean, you're also free to believe what you would like and to, you know, make your own connections in life and do uh, live your life accordingly. And, uh, but that's not how one feels. They feel like if you get traction, if you can capture the fleeting consciousness of the masses, you are actually under threat. Hmm. And uh, that's what we seek to encode in cryptographically secure protocols. And we seek to prevent yeah, it's a it's excellent point. I actually didn't know that about the USSR that they had uh, a more extensive list of enumerated rights. Oh, it was I, endless. I, I guess that the the best thing about the U.S. founding of the U.S. was basically its decentralization, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're saying here, right? More decentralization leads to less coercion, less deception, less violence, etc. And that was, you know, the checks and balances encoded into the founding of the U.S. That exactly. was kind of the separation magic sauce. Powers and yeah. di- exactly checks and balances, separation of powers. That's I'm just for the audience using that interchangeably. Checks yeah. and balances, separation of powers with decentralization, right? As long as you recognize and and the system has to enforce, you have to authenticate this block to put it in like a Bitcoin parlance, yeah. right? As long as the system proceeds, um, yeah we're all good yeah. um but and and it worked like, right. it worked right it was the most successful mm-hmm. governance model to date but i would say that the key point is that because it encoded some decentralization right it was the most decentralized mm-hmm. form of governance governance up until that point and that protected people from these these alterable histories right these rewriting mm. of the, the arbitrary rewriting of the constitution protected them from the exceptions to the greatest extent so far obviously not perfect obviously we're degenerating quickly today in the US mm-hmm. but it but if the USSR had this more extensive list of i think you called them parchment guarantees 
we had a less extensive list, but we had uh, the mechanisms in place to to preserve them, right? The decentralization is what preserved those guarantees better than what the USSR had. Exactly. You know, when when you have recognition of the value of the individual, um, going back again to the Enlightenment, but if if you if you start from the premise of individuals deserve the right to, to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, property, uh, and sovereignty um, of themselves, their minds, their families, then you're in a position where you can you can distribute where you'd like to live and how you'd like to participate and engage in that system. It's all good. People are different. In the words of my favorite author, Neil Stevenson, someone at, uh, he was giving some talk and someone goes, you know, why do you think this book's to, you know, had better commercial success than the other when this one's clearly of greater note? And he goes, look, different people like different shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ultimately it's okay to, to have, um, you don't have to have a homogenous society. Mm-hmm. In fact, like, that's counterproductive uh, to, to, to a great extent in many areas of life. So, you know, we look at these enumerated rights uh, under the USSR, under the Soviet Union, and these parchment guarantees were not only were they not enforceable, not recognized, they were just gestures, right? It's like it's like uh, it's like North Korea. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, the CCP, right? It, it, the Communist Party and People's Liberation Army, whatever that means. Um, but but ultimately, you are nothing more than the handout they give you because you're not working from any greater premise or not, you know, recognition of. You have to recognize these foundations. We have to agree upon that. And then everything is not an existential crisis. Everything is not under threat because it is deemed important or urgent. That is life. There will always be important and an urgent shit to attend to. Yeah. That's insane. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Uh, yeah. That's that's the nature of reality, right? We're dealing with uncertainty as we move forward in time, but we're trying to figure out a way to not let those uncertainties be the excuse for creating exceptions to the rule set that we all are meant to abide by. Exactly. And decentralization is the paradigm that offers the most security to that end. You know, and um, just thinking about these exceptions and how far you can go and people think these are abstractions, you know, it was only a few weeks ago at the time of this recording uh, that uh, the world woke up, or at least the United States woke up to attack on Israel and the atrocities that uh, occurred. And the next morning, morning our time, I remember seeing when people were still trying to process what was happening and information was was all over the place. Everyone was caught flat-footed. And I saw someone, a protester with a pretty significant audience in London. She was speaking and she said, um, no violence uh, for the sake of revolution, or she said Islamic revolution, is terrorism. And everyone was cheering and her audience. But it really captured and solidified for me, you know, how can people be sympathetic to these atrocities? And you realized, right, it's it's Marxism. Nothing, and, and by the way, Che Guevara said the same thing in his death squads, you know, in Cuba. Uh, nothing furthering, even if people are innocent, uh, in furthering what you arbitrarily consider to be revolution is a crime or violence or immoral. 
And we should recognize, yeah, it is. And your historical grievance, and going back to what I was talking about, League of, you know, uh, League of Nations and, and UN's recognition, but really it's like they got the hint, right? Like they understood, okay, we can no longer say we're just going to take it to take it. We instead say, hey, look, you know, Russia goes, we have historical interest and, in, you know, these, these territorial borders, the, you know, borders of fluid, we have a historical claim or fixing, addressing and remediating an historical grievance, mm. or it's an act of defense for X, Y, and Z, you know, justify your, your reason. And so we see that people have gotten very, very good at these justifications under a working paradigm. And my concern is that modern Marxism can inadvertently replace separation of powers, uh, the equivalent of the constitution and a functioning protocol um, and pr these protections and recognitions if we allow it to. And so you have to say, I reject your premise. That is insufficient. Like I hear it, null void, mm -hmm. you know, in a, and as long as you do that, um, you know, we're in a better place, but, um, you know, the Supreme court in some degree has moved more in this direction. At least they're willing to address and and discuss it. But the best thing we can possibly do, you know, instead of waiting twenty years for one particular issue in one particular context, is to encode them um, and demonstrate uh, that was always what the founders wanted anyway. That was it's literally what a constitution means. Right. Right. Now this is such an excellent point, and I, I guess just to reiterate the. The, what these things are being called, right? The the language, it's always, we get to the language, right? The language is very important in propagating these false narratives. I was just reminded that, you know, the rebrand of the U.S. Department of War, right. the U.S. Department of Defense, right? It, well, Department of War sounds a bit more atrocious than the Department of Defense. Right. We get more palatable. Justified. Yes, yeah. exactly. And there's a, there's a, this great song by the police titled i think it's called spirits in the material world and i always yeah. go back to the opening lyrics of this song because we're you know this, this cycle that we're trapped in you know that oh, violence begets more violence past violence is always an excuse for justified future violence uh the opening lyrics of the song say that there is no political solution to our troubled evolution have no faith in constitution there is no bloody revolution, right? We're never going to fix this problem of cyclical mimetic bloodshed with more bloodshed. It just, it fundamentally won't work because- Violence begets violence. Yes, Absolutely. violence begets violence. So what do we need? We need Bitcoin, right? We need something that actually lowers the profitability of violence that is harder to steal, uh, makes coercion, compulsion, violence less profitable sucks revenues away from the state, right? As more people hold their savings in Bitcoin, well, that's less savings being held in fiat currency that the central bank can plunder through currency counterfeiting. It's also harder to tax. So if you increase explicit taxes, well, people presumably would go elsewhere. They'd go to a jurisdiction where they are treated better. So we can get this actual revolution in a bloodless way, right? That reduces future bloodshed. And that's, I mean, I think that's kind of a universal tenant that people would seek, right? Like no one wants violence. Violence is risky and expensive. And um, 
you know, it just seems like there there is no solution other than this bloodless revolution uh, we call Bitcoin and more broadly decentralization. You know, in, in touching on that point about the lyrics from the police, there's no constitution and there's no revolution. One of, I think, one of the more pernicious, um, and it's just been more widely accepted uh, comparisons is, or turns of phrases is, is the CCP or communist China is in competition with the West. That we are, these two systems are in competition. And I think, again, this goes back to the working theory of modern Marxism, which is, these are just economic justifications. These are red herrings um, where what what's so, so gross and, and repugnant about this comparison is you're trying to say that if you can have a result, which you can dictate. So you say, oh, well, we're going to set these subjective parameters. Is there more housing? Is there more food? Is there more, you know, is the longevity rate, is it, you know, is there less pollution? You, you can just, you can set these parameters. It's like fitting a model in machine learning. You can, you can force an outcome by determining the, the, the parameters in the training data. And so what's so pernicious about this is people go, oh, well, and, and the, the, the pseudo intellectual, you see it all the time in the Wall Street Journal and they go, oh, the competing systems, uh, you know, this is a competition between, and I'm going, it is, there's no competition between self-determination mm-hmm. and tyranny. It, it's actually, they say, lyrics, like it's the journey, right? not the destination. And if, if you were to say that ultimately it's a competition as if like, they're both equally, first of all, I reject the premise, they're both equally valid. They're not. One is, is, is not just immoral, but it's, it contradicts uh, both the enlightenment and the values and recognition of the individual, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's about as evil, evil and pernicious as a system could be. Um, but uh, it, it requires you to buy into this premise that they are, if some note relevant, if not equal. And we were just like observing, we we're clinically observing to see what the outcomes and the results are. And then you can pick your data points yeah. and you can say, well, you know, because the CCP does all the time. We lifted people out of poverty, those that weren't slaughtered, right? And those that give, you know, uh, ability to uh, express dissent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can pick data points that are favorable. These are very convenient statements to make. And the West should not fall for this ploy. Uh, these premises, uh, pick a data point uh, pick a premise, something that's convenient to these parties and go, well, you know, we're really showing that, uh, these are comparable systems that deserve equal respect. Fuck that. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Fuck that. And, you know, I go back to, I guess it's been decade plus now, but there was this assertion that was popular in the U S that by trading with China, we would like pull them into the global right. marketplace, they would become more of a capitalistic liberal democracy. We'd sort of export our culture, I guess, in in importing and exporting goods with them. And it seems like actually the opposite is now occurring, right? That absolutely states are now importing the Chinese uh, governance model, right? The, the you know, global surveillance, absolutely. social credit scores, central bank digital currencies. These things are now being exported <laughs> to the West uh, instead of the inverse. And and just to, we to, to 
Yeah, we pretended that moral values somehow were encoded into the accumulation of resources. Yes, exactly right. Yes. And just to echo something you said earlier, right? It's not only is capitalism in the pure, true sense, right? And as we said earlier, mm -hmm. the institutionalized policy of respect for private property and consensual transfers of private property via contract, mm -hmm. not only is that morally superior, because now the individual is self-directed, all mm -hmm. human interaction is governed by consent on both sides of every trade. So it's morally superior, like unquestionably, mm -hmm. assuming that, you know, human freedom and flourishing is your metric of morality, but it's also economically superior, right? We know that an axiom of Austrian economics is that theft reduces productivity. Mm -hmm. It's very intuitive, right? Every hour that you spend stealing from someone is an hour you did not spend producing. So every act of theft is a net decrement to productivity. And further, every act of theft is actually disincentivizing producers from producing. Because if they can't keep the fruits of their labor or their effort, then what's the incentive to produce? So we're talking about a, a, a system, and thank God it's that way, right? Thank God the morally superior system is also the pragmatically superior, economically superior system. If it wasn't that right. way, we'd have a real problem on our hands. <laughs> It turns out like corrupting other people's means of production is not in your or other's interest. Yes. Uh, and it, yeah, you can capture it, but you certainly have more progressive or, or Marxist uh, professors and higher education, Aaron Goldman professors, that, you know, they'll say things like, there are no billionaires uh, that you know haven't taken. It's the proletariat, right? Mm -hmm. It's the exploiter exploitee paradigm. It's you must control and exploit others. And of course, we'll just forget about the whole context of that. You can be a you know a shareholder or receive dividends right. or uh, other economic or Start social a business, benefits. right? Of course, and. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's important to to reject that. And when you think of it, I touched on interest balancing a little bit earlier. This is like a term of art that's used in law where the courts, and it's less in fashion, but the, let's just say the last 70 years, uh, it, it you know, old habits die hard. Um, you find something that should be protected and enshrined by law as a matter of law. Um, and then people will appeal to the court. And they say, but, or Congress passes something that they try to enforce and, uh, and defend. And they say, sure, there's freedom of expression, but this is a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. This is misinformation for COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's the same thing. So interest balancing is we know there is an unequivocal, unrestrained and absolute right to freedom of assembly, right? Um, but... Uh, it'd be a lot cooler if you didn't because it's dangerous right now. And um, so I think one of the most dangerous things that you'll hear, it's kind of like, almost like when you, you learn a new word you, you see all the time. So when you're like cognizant of when you hear politicians say, no right is absolute. Mm. This is very much like Vogue, right? Um, whether it's free expression or firearms, uh, ownership or privacy, they'll say, well, no right is absolute. First of all, reject that premise. They absolutely are. Any exceptions that are a matter of law, for the most part, provided clarity on what the rule was to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, but like the right to trial by jury, there's no exception for that. There's no exception for 
you know, freedom of information, freedom of expression, the, the right to freely assemble mm-hmm. um, or uh, to own firearms or for due process or protection from unreasonable search and seizure. They are absolute. Mm-hmm. And people, it is an inconvenient thing for people to hear because they they know if they can sound reasonable, if they can provide a sufficient justification, which by the way, this goes back to Marxism. That's what it is. Um, you know, talk about uh, Wilson, right? Uh, President Wilson, you look back at the creation of the Federal Reserve and the expansion of the federal government. And you look at the 19, 1918, right? 1920s. Um, that's really when the pro- proliferation um, of this idea of the administrative state started. And, you know, Wilson was the first presidential candidate and party to become uh, chief executive that actually campaigned on that the Constitution is a relic. It's an anachronism. And uh a civilized society is he was obsessed. He, he was he was actually dean at Princeton. And at Princeton, he was obsessed with German administrative law. They don't have the same concept of separation of powers. It's a very sophisticated society. They produced a lot of goods. Uh the Prussian Academy had the greatest scientists, mm-hmm. you know, so many great minds in Central Europe at the time. And he was obsessed by this idea of there is an expert for everything. Uh, and so we created the administrative state from what would become the FAA, the DEA, the SEC, Federal Trade, uh, uh, Equities Trade Commission. Uh, er- everything has a uh, uh, like an expert um, that you can appeal to that knows best. Mm. And this gets back to not just the exemptions. But you can find, so you go, well, look, here's what it should be. Here's how modern government and governance should be conducted. But we have this really smart guy, you know, and and Dr. Johnston says, actually, and he's an expert, you know. Um, yeah. And so we follow these administrative, the really extrajudicial, extra uh, legal means to justify and pro the rule of law for the last hundred years. And this applies to both. You know, we look at the Federal Reserve, but it's it's the same thing where when you have contempt for these sound systems, when you have contempt for what are absolute uh, rights and protections, uh, that's how you start corroding. And so I think it goes back all the way to there. Um, and then, of course, uh, Marxism gained traction and uh, you combine the administrative state with which the direction we we're already heading. So you had a lot of people during World War II when people go, oh, the Red Scare and, uh, you know, uh, in, in post-World War II where everyone was paranoid about the communists. The reality is that the, those two ideas were converging very clearly. The ad, ad, admission, the glorification of uh, the administrative state, of rule by expert, uh, People were looking uh, at the time and then at the USSR and you go, well, hey, look, it's okay to have these centralized governing bodies dictate. It's just, it was kind of like, you know, they say now falsely people go, oh, it's not communism, right? It's, it's, it's Chinese capitalism, you know, or with Chinese characteristics. Like we were doing the same thing in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And we were basically saying, well, you know, 
it's a it's it's ruled by expert it's a, it's you know mm. it has it has american attributes mm. it's basically communism with american characteristics and that's the direction we went in <laughs> and we were obsessed with the administrative state because we love to dictate to others how to control their lives there was an educated class um, and they saw themselves as self-endowed, but that's not how it works. We are a distributed nation. Like going back to De Tocqueville, right? Like uh, De Tocqueville in, in the 1700s uh, toured America, and uh, he wrote, you know, he wrote the famous book. And uh, what one of the things De Tocqueville did is like nothing quite like leaving it to a Frenchman to explain America to Americans. He was saying that individuals are involved at the local level in politics and self-determination in what their reality looks like and it's such a big country with such in such an industrial base and i mean industrial not just like mechanical industrial base as in productive mm-hmm. and and you can kind of you can pick your your means your out your preferred way of production in a new flourishing country and he said that is what distinguishes the united states is the individual self-determination in their community uh, and their day-to-day lives. Mm. And uh, we have now equated that to uh, basically majority rules, uh, system override, where, oh, I'll get involved if it's sufficient to undermine these protections that are deliberately in place Mm. uh, to protect from these future acts. And it's like, no, that's meant to be for day-to-day administration of your life. Well said. The, yeah, this whole idea, I mean, they're almost synonymous, if not the same, right? If we have a, a maximally individually self-directed society, that's a decentralized world, right? That's where people are choosing for themselves, dealing with one another by consent. And this idea of the experts know best, which we've seen very strongly pushed in the past three years during the whole pandemic affair, that's just an excuse for creating these exceptions again, right? It's like, oh, you don't actually don't know what's good for you. Let me impose what's good for you. It's cited into authority where no authority exists. Yes. And it's crazy. So like with COVID, I think it's a perfect example. You're citing to physicians or they say, hey, we're following the science. Just in the simplest sense, um, okay, science is a process. Yes. And they were trying to cite to a consensus and they required for political uh, purposes a consensus and they dictated that consensus. Uh, so, you know, when you when you self-determine or pre-approve what the consensus should be or what the policies are, uh, and then you seek, then you cite to authority. It's a very backhanded way. And by the way, that's how the CCP operates now. It's it's an obsession with administrative state and bureaucracy where you can hide between your behind your agenda and then cite to someone else where you know you can invent a department or working group or authority and these nameless, headless, you know, it's a it's a headless fourth branch of government, but like in communism, policy is the government. You know, I actually uh I had a conversation once with a Chinese judge. Uh, and she said, uh, and I said, you know, how do you contend with putting uh, uh, communist or party policy ahead of what you see is, is the rule of law? And she said, but the policy is law. Mm. It like it didn't even, and right. she wasn't hiding behind it. 
It is a statement of fact. The policy is the law. And so that's what we were seeking to do, but we do it disingenuously, mm -hmm. right? With COVID, instead of just stating, hey, please don't go outside, you know, right. please don't spread, you know, here's what our position is. They started to dictate it based on citing to authority where no legal authority even exists. And then also there's no great consensus or specialized, uh, you know, insight. It's just... It's just citing in your footnote to an authority, like she yes. said. Poli uh, party policy is law. It's legislation There's by law. fiat, right? Just mm -hmm. decreeing law into existence, and it's um, it's a real, yeah. real problem because, well, what, you, you're just creating. It's a false reality, right? It's you're, you're saying, as you just said, you, you're acting as if there is a consensus. One of my mm -hmm. favorite things about, one of my favorite mantras that came out of the whole pandemic was don't question the science. And if you really decompose that statement, as you said, science is a process, right? It's a uh, a rigorous method of questioning, actually. Yeah. Examining hypotheses and premise. Exactly. Don't question the questioning is what it boils down to. And it's like, it just makes your head melt if you really look at it for what it is. You know, it's interesting. Marx actually had said, um, if we can deconstruct and deprive man of the interest in the pursuit uh, of capital or of money, mm -hmm. uh, his greater altruistic nature will come forth and he will be less inquisitive and more communal. Communal. Mm. It, it's the same thing. It's you, And there are a lot of well-intentioned people you know, but the problem is when you are surrounded by it, you don't even know how to identify it. And that's why I, I really enjoy having me on for this conversation. You have to identify in order to reject. You have to see insidious, disingenuous statements or what the true underlying purpose and function of them are. Mm -hmm. um, and when you can do that, it makes it easier and also allows you to think with greater clarity because no one wants to you know, drown from rising sea levels. No one wants to die terribly from a disease. Uh, no one wants to you know be murdered in the streets because of violence or what you know what is perceived to be the root of it. Uh, so it is easy if you take people and these policies at face value exactly. as opposed to seeing what they are. Exactly, which is cultural Marxism with an excuse and. It, and ex find an exemption, justify. What is the existential crisis? Squeeze. Yes. No, beautifully said. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world. My thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials, and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. 
Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. That's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Now I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. And the whole face value, right? Like taking the statement um, at face value rather than examining what its underlying meaning, right? Decomposing it. I think that's why the, as you were saying, the experts know best, right? And the the love affair we had with the administrative state. That's such an effective lie because it's seasoned with truth, actually. Mm-hmm. There are experts, right? There are people that know more Absolutely. about different domains than others, right? That's when you have a certain you know, health condition, you go to a specialist, right? Someone that's an expert in that area. But that doesn't justify coercing people or, or eliminating self-direction, right? Even if the doctor knows better than the patient, the patient still has the right to say no, right? Even if the doctor's right, even if the doctor is absolutely right, has the medicine, knows it's going to cure him. If the patient says, no, fuck you, I don't want it, then by God, we need to honor that patient's right. You know, he has the right to say no. That's his sovereignty. And what you just touched on is actually, I think, and it's actually part of the solution. Uh, It's critical. Um, There are experts. There are domain authorities. Um, This is an anti-pursuit of information of knowledge, accumulation of knowledge. Uh, it's actually the opposite. It's weaponization of it. So the way you would you would kind of proceed with deconstructing the administrative state, you have encoding these values, you have limiting uh, the functions, the administrative op- um, operations, and clarifying what those powers are and perpetuity and what their rights uh, and recognition are. But well, okay, but how do you address the existing bureaucracy, mm-hmm. right? This, this administrative state. Well, you don't get rid of these domain experts, right? You just don't put them in the uh, in an area of policymaking, which is 
you know, or rulemaking, rulemaking and, and law for the legislature. Mm-hmm. And so the legislature can make the law and the executive can enforce it. You know, one of the most interesting and, and least corrupted areas in the federal government is actually the U.S. Marshal's office. And there's one very specific reason for it. The U.S. Marshal does not determine his own policy. They are actually an arm of the court. Mm-hmm. So when the Marshal's service shows up, where they going to force or capture or, or, or whether it's someone or property, it's actually on direction of the court and by definition, uh, the furthering of due process. Now, you, we can argue to what extent due process is followed, and but you are actually, they are just the court and the federal court will say, hey, uh, basically here, here's the due process, here's uh, the protections at, uh, and, and here's what was uh, followed. And then they, the court, is directing them to enforce something post due process mm-hmm. or during the proceedings of, as opposed to the FBI, as opposed to uh, these different areas uh, of the of domestic uh, uh, administrative state. And so you don't have to take these subject matter experts and say, you know, uh, you, you all have to go away, though I do think there's limited, more clearly defined roles. You can move them to something like whether it's the U.S. Marshals, or you can say, "Hey, look, if you if you must keep these these economic or uh, these certain uh, domain experts or medical, I think it's a better example, right? Um, I think you should keep them under these uh, in the enforcement offices that are further directly." by the court through due process and these protections. And, and so if it comes down to ultimately, you know, uh, there's, there's something in force, whether it's quarantine, or I think that's a, an extreme example because there's no exception to freedom for, for assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we actually go back to John Adams. Uh, he actually was writing about when he, fir- when he first became president, uh, as the second president, yellow fever was sweeping uh, Philadelphia. And DC, and he was going into the country, and he, and everyone was doing this, and he invited family friends to basically, would you like to, would you like to quarantine with me? And so these aren't people that are like, in fact, you know, antibiotics and hadn't been invented, and bacterial infection, great plague, and uh, you know, uh, basically, uh, I was trying to think of the name of of the bubonic plague, tularemia. That's it. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we didn't have those, we didn't have the basis for modern medicine, yet they recognize when hard times come, okay, we're going to go in place, follow our best judgment. They never proposed dissolving the government or the most important, like the protections that the government's roles to, to enforce. Mm. And then, but we, we turn that on its head during COVID mm. instead of, uh, recognizing these natural rights, we say, well, they are suspended or we're not going to enforce them. Or the, if the state over overextends itself, we're going to default. It's like the Chevron doctrine mm-hmm. uh, in, in major questions doctrine, where we're going to assume that these subject matter domain authorities, um, we're going to defer to their judgment for ambiguous or unknown areas. Mm-hmm. And it should have been the other way around, where unless it is... Uh, through this process, um, and through through the uh, um, through like conventional jurisprudence, and, and unless it's seen through by the courts, 
you should have absolutely no suspensions. Mm -hmm. If anything, it should be the opposite. So I think it's renormalizing. You can take domain experts because I kind of went on a tangent and you can restructure them where it is needed in areas where they can in insist on the lawful enforcement and recognition. You know, if you want to have some type of, you know, forensic accountants, instead of sending them the FBI or, you know, trying to follow a swift banking system and, and basically, you know, we want to get into bank secrecy laws, but surveying and spying on people uh, without probable cause, without a warrant. Um, I think ultimately, you know, you could restructure those to like, hey, if someone steals your stuff or if your stuff's missing or you have a, you know, a, a business dispute and a commercial dispute and it's settled and you need an expert to help then divide the findings of the court to enforce the lawful um, outcome and the decision of the court, I think that's an entirely different and far less inherently corrupt because they don't have their own agenda. The, their agenda is being determined, their subject matter experts that are there, you know, serving at the pleasure of the parties who may require their insistence to enforce a lawful order, hmm. as opposed to determining the policy themselves. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Like you can uphold the respect for individual life, liberty, property through due process, yet still have some element of subject matter expertise. And But when you don't, obviously we didn't do that during the pandemic. And I think this ties back to Marxism actually, right? These two phrases um, accord really well, right? From each according to their ability to each according to their need. Total bullshit as we covered at the top of the show. Well, what was the bullshit push during pandemic? Nobody is mm -hmm. safe until everybody is safe. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? Examine that. What, how, what does that mean? Nobody is safe until everybody is safe. How can no human be safe until every human is safe? It doesn't, it's, it's, they're on a, it's an, it's a false they turn on its, Yeah. They turn on its head and it is a false equivalence, just like, uh, gun control components or, uh, uh advocates now will say, uh, I have a right to life, like firearms, you know, have their own agendas, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what they're trying to say with with COVID and whatever, you know, this great experiment and what was a, an actual existential, potentially real threat. What, uh, like you said, there's no recognition of the individual right until everybody is protected or everyone uh, is falling under our preferred policy measures, no matter whether they were right or wrong. And then people, you know, they get really hung up on, well, this is the best thing to do. Or look at the outcomes-based result. I think this is similar going back to the CCP. I think it's looking at this is not a competition between two comparable systems. It is not going, oh, well, you know, on the one hand, you know, they, they, they have, uh, you know, free vaccinations. On the other hand, you know, housing is more expensive here. On the, it, it's not a one-for-one -one comparison. One self-determination, one's not. Yes, right. That is the that's the basis of all of it. The cherry picking of the data. I mean, this is mm -hmm. Peterson always says something I find very interesting. There's there's basically an infinite number of facts, right? You can find a billion, trillion, zillion facts about anything, but it's which facts do you select to support what narrative? Right. So you, this cherry picking of data, right? You can, the CCP can build a narrative like, oh, we're a humanitarian organization. Look how many people we've lifted out of poverty. Ba, ba, ba. They can cite data. But that belies the fact that they're undermining individual self direction, individual sovereignty. Right. And that, that's the foundation of 
of civilization, basically. Yeah. And when we look back at talking about uh, wars of aggression and trying to codify or have nation states agree on we're not going to, there should be a pressure to not recognize uh, wars of territorial expansion or aggression or the literally they called it the fruits of war so the bounty and the resources and the plunder right and, and the use and enjoyment of whatever you took whether it's their beaches or their stuff or their wives it doesn't matter mm-hmm. and um yeah i think that's what we're that's what we're really talking about mm-hmm. and um uh what was your last point um just the cherry picking of data Right. The, oh, right. That's what I was going to say is that the, the cherry picking of data is how they we justify currently to find an existential crisis mm-hmm. to enable, um, you know, and we can. So we, that's where I was going with historical grievances. Thanks for, mm-hmm. you know, uh, bolstering my recollection there. So when you if you're just trying to if the name of the game is existential crisis, identify historical grievances who is the victim or who, who is um the exploiter who is the exploitee paradigm and then all you have to do is cherry pick your historical perspectives to justify it and you know everyone's not going to agree with you but what you really are seeking is just hard power just mm-hmm. raw power and because you're really not trying to convince the side you're trying to kill or conquer or take or suppress or whatever mm-hmm. you're just trying to win that's and that's right. what this is yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. And it's, um, I don't know, bad enough if it were just engaged in and truthfully told, but you know, much worse when you engage in it and then try to tell the the victims it's for their own good. It's just unbelievably mm-hmm. insidious. I don't really know another word for it. Um, so if we take this full circle, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> A lot of problems we've talked about, like, what are i mean what are the solutions like we've touched on decentralization we've touched on digital tools like bitcoin and noster what can we do to to empower the sovereignty of individuals and stop them from being on the receiving end of these politically weaponized policies yep so i think is first step is identifying what modern marxism or yeah, uh, you know, communism by other means is and its various social forms, right? Interest balancing tests are one of them. What is the justification? What is the existential crisis? Um, it's a little recap. Um, but the way we solve it is we start with encoding, um, and if we can cryptographically encode into whether it's a distributed protocol or other means. Um, you can start to repel uh, digital totalitarianism and, and and start down the path of self-determination. If you can ensure that the recipient, the sender, and the recipient the messages are received as intended and that resources are allocated as intended um, by the parties and the consent of the governed or the consent of the parties involved, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, we, we see ourselves, people today unwittingly find themselves on the receiving end, right. Of these politically weaponized policies. And you should recognize that these aren't policies on face value. 
And it's very naive to take them at face value. Mm -hmm. So everyone finds themselves in the middle of this tug of war. And whether it's big tech or big government um, or just vested parties, like you said, um, you know, it's it's in fashion or in vogue to accumulate enough resources, attack, um, capture the collective consciousness and pressure. Mm. So um, encryption is, a, was I say cryptographic secure protocols. Encryption uh, is a core component of this because you're taking actual objective mathematically uh, enforceable uh, tools and functions uh, and uh, you're encoding them into information sets. And as opposed to the, you know, the L. Ron Hubbard and the Marx and these other parties and Rousseau, who Marx so adored, uh, they're fantastical. They're, you know, they're trying to create this binary reality of the paradigm of exploiter exploitee, like leveraging. Uh, and you say, okay, look, um, they can't corrupt math. And there are various types and forms of encryption. But what we do is we standardize that and we normalize that. And we look to ways to apply that to every area of life. Hmm. So whether that is limitations on enforcement mechanisms, whether that's with a formalized government or many parts of the world that don't have access to safe and sound banking or any semblance of trustworthy systems in any means, uh, allowing them to create rules and functions which they can engage and participate both locally and uh, internationally in commerce and in uh, discourse. Uh, we then look to apply that to, uh, like I said, communication, and we seek to encode it. Um, and it doesn't have to be a single, these are the premises, and then you can build the tools that enable people to enjoy and participate. And hopefully uh, their governments or their nation or their people or whatever the future looks like uh, recognizes these values. But most importantly, they know they're working from, if not corruptible, but censorship resistant and objective means. Hmm. Um, and and, and I'll, I'll touch on another point, you know, the, the internet itself, talk about distribution, whether it's the founding United States or um, the first distributed, successful, resilient network. Um, you know, the internet itself was developed during heightened nuclear tensions between the US and Soviet Union. It had the explicit function of eliminating single points of communications failure in the event of nuclear catastrophe. So like Bitcoin was conceived in the midst of economic fallout as banks required extraordinary government interventions in order to survive, um, the internet itself took a distributed approach. Um, and based on those principles of self-determination and ethos of, of Bitcoin in the internet, we can start to encode uh, those censorship-resistant and self-determinative values into our tools. And, you know, that's what we're doing an impervious, you know, an impervious chat. Nothing is perfect in its first form, but we are very encouraged. It's, it, at the end of the day, we are building with impervious chat, which is now available or soon to be available on mobile, depending on when this airs. It is a protocol. Impervious chat is a protocol based approach mm -hmm. to private censorship resistant messaging. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways to do it. 
But we think the most important is you have to have access to the infrastructure. And then it needs to be portable, private, and yours and, and your data in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of creating this perverse incentive structure where you want your guy in charge, people are fans of Elon Musk and then they're not. And he wants to create a WeChat and he, he says things, but does he mean them? Mm-hmm. Instead of trying, like, instead of trying to hang your success uh, and your ability to participate on just like favorable policy preferences of CCP or raw power or modern Marxism, instead of trying to rely on your guy or favorable party uh, in power or uh, furthering technology policies, we should should take those just like we do for encoding those values in whether it's the constitution or uh, Bitcoin, we should take those levers off the table so they can't be corrupted. We go, cool, I'll try your tool. I will use your system, whether it's you know Nostra for social, for public, like a Twitter or Facebook social alternative, whether it's for private communications or media sharing or video calls. I'll try your tool, but ultimately it's my data, it's my identity, and it's mine in perpetuity that I can dictate how it's used, received, and accessed. And I think that that is a fair proposal instead of trying to say, oh, like, a, like an endless feature list, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so our goal is to build WhatsApp without WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. It's to make a practical alternative, but it's a protocol-based approach where uh, that is in perpetuity up to a successful by, to, by the individual. And then you don't have to worry about policy changes. Mm-hmm. At the same time, availability and uptime, because if these systems persist, your um, your preferred client or platform, you know that'll change over time. The, t- the technology tools we use over time change, mm-hmm. but the underlying protocols and infrastructure they can persist, mm-hmm. and that's what we're banking on. That's very fascinating, and this seems like the only path forward. Frankly, right? If you're going to have true, sustainable decentralization that empowers individual self direction individual sovereignty, you need these things that politics can't shake or corrupt or change. You know, Bitcoin, obviously an amazing, shining example of that, right? You might, again, back to what the constitution was intended to be, this set of parameters that the government will not breach under any circumstances. They'll never make exception to them. Mm -hmm. In that sense, Bitcoin is maybe more American in principle than the US constitution, right? It's an actual set of parameters that no yeah, actor can change. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's like an unrewritable constitution. Mm-hmm. Right? And you think about it. We can't break an unalterable history, maybe even an absolute right. As you touched on earlier, they're saying that there's no absolute rights. It's like, well, I mean, Bitcoin is obviously it's not accessible by everyone everywhere, but um it's the it's the closest mm-hmm. thing I think we have to an absolute right to a to a banking system right mm-hmm. and um that that's just indispensable to individual self-direction and sovereignty yeah it, it, i i love the the bitcoin constitution uh not just comparison but i think it's important and when you look at our um you know if you're selling a house or whatever you're making warranties on that transaction right mm-hmm. And when we talk about corruptibility of systems, people, it's it's like, you know, it, it, it's the great switch where 
we're trying to choose what systems to participate in. Mm-hmm. And there are warranties up front. We go, okay, I want to objectively look at the tools. I want to look at the system. What are the rules? What could change? What is subjective? Uh, uh, what's absolute? And that was the function of the Constitution. And there weren't supposed to be uh, exceptions to these rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, I think that's what we can do with our tools moving forward mm-hmm. is we can go, okay, what are the, as opposed to like ever-changing tech policies and company, and people can fixate too much on like any products in user license agreement. It, it almost doesn't matter. It's what the company wants to enforce. Ultimately, what's within their capability to enforce but what is controlled and owned by the individual and what are the t- mechanisms that will ensure that's the case. Mm-hmm. And, uh, cause you don't want to opt into a system that you unwittingly depend on and depend is a whole spectrum, mm-hmm. but like actually depend on to you have, it's like people that use YouTube, right. And they monetize for years and years, their content is pulled, right. They're demonetized, uh, and and they've made critical life decisions. And and while you call it uh, promissory estoppel or detrimental reliance, rel- detrimental reliance, where uh, you know they didn't explicitly say it, but there's such a the system and the the function and the way that transaction was framed, it's dependent on certain assumptions. Mm-hmm. And if those gross assumptions uh, change the the other party should be informed beforehand or else they're you know not responsible. So instead of trying to get cute with it and be like, well, we said this, but it's changing, you say, here's what's absolute, here's what's incorruptible, here's what is encoded and encrypted in perpetuity, here's where the data will be stored, here's how you access it, here's how you port it, port yeah, as a move, how, how you transfer it. And then other things, features, UI, you know. Uh, the experience that is, you know, going to mature and develop and change as any particular tool changes. So that's how we approached Impervious. And so it's not even a pitch on Impervious. It's we're truly mission driven because we see that these are the flaws in the existing system. And the best way to approach that is to take those policy options through the chief executive, through the president. The function of DOD, right, is to provide uh, options to the president. We take those options off the table. Mm-hmm. That was the function allegedly of the constitution and separation of powers. Mm-hmm. You take certain things off the table. It's your, it's your privacy. It's your data and perpetuity. Um, and then, uh, then you're in a good agreed to starting point and things speak, you know, and, and by the way, the, those that have embraced modern Marxism, I think they're in for a real shock mm-hmm. in cultural Marxism, because if, if, you know, you're good at every skill set's perishable. And if the only thing you've practiced in life that you were taught by higher education and then rewarded by various institutions is existential crisis, create an exception, what is the, you know, given hysteria. And once you encounter these sound systems, you're going to be in for a treat because you're not going to have the tools to navigate them. If you're not creating anything, if you're not inventing, if you don't have the tools of persuasion, and if you can't convince anyone based on merit to change their mind, I think it's going to be an increasingly isolated thing. And I hope it's a fleeting uh, time period in society where we rewarded all the wrong tools and those with actual influence on society uh, writ large 
uh, they will have limited means to do that through the coercive existential crisis, modern Marxism route. Mm. And they'll have to kind of get on board or, or kind of perish or wither and become irrelevant. And so like you can create, but like, right now we have perverse incentive structure we talked about earlier. We can bolster and uh, reinforce positive in- incentives. And the best way to do it is to, to shut that down, mm-hmm. you know, to shut the coercion down. What's a sound system? Here are the rules. You have, you know, uh, people aren't going to like it. Journalists might write against it. Mm-hmm. You know, people will say, what if a system's abused? Well, guess what? That is 101 Marxism. Mm-hmm. It's 101. What is the exception? But what if? What if? Well, here's the rules. Hold individuals responsible um, because the call to action is to participate based on these assumptions. And if you're going to have self-determination, you have to be informed. Informed consensus thing. Uh-huh. And I think that to participate in their tools and functions and commerce and exchange information, I think the consent of the participants is critical. And so while systems and tools can be abused, um, just like we saw after uh, the attack on Israel, uh, the calls for uh, various inspection and, uh, from Bitcoin to other uh, crypto assets uh, and seizure it's we all know that bad things will happen in physical and digital world but most importantly we need the self-determination and and uh informed consent to know what we're participating in mm-hmm. and if you change those rules every time something were to occur you don't actually have a system anymore there's no consensus because you should just say up front up until and unless and so you don't have anything mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's a wonderful framing. And I guess by taking options away from that administrative layer, right, that can arbitrarily basically rug pull you on your, your system experience, you're increasing the options for the individual participants, right, that they own basically themselves and their expression and their money and all of these things. And so that whole thing just sort of tilts the world toward being more of a meritocracy rather than... Um, you know, these coercive hierarchies where you can just arbitrarily take things or arbitrarily censor things, right? You shift the whole world uh, to a state in which you need to actually provide some value to earn some value rather than just, you know, steal, take, censor, control, manipulate, et cetera. And um, I don't know, I guess when you change the tool set that fundamentally, it percolates up into the culture, right? Like what actually exists in the culture. So it's exactly. a very interesting connection. You know, and we can, in the meantime, call out the contradictions in the values that they profess to hold or these parties, you know, and, and consent is the biggest one. Mm-hmm. It's not just consent of kind of the stereotypical examples. It's also consent of the systems that you're opting into and the rules, the parameters, and the warranties based on that. Yeah. And so... Um, it's important for people to understand when they call for exceptions and they call for existential crisis. Uh, what you're actually saying is system override on consent. That's right. And there's so full few exceptions on that truly that they almost never apply. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. Great. They do leave it to the individual. Yeah. It always comes back to that. And, um, complicated, but simple right at the bottom of it, right? So it's individual consent, and self-determination uh, and as you mm-hmm. said informed consent right to actually know what you're opting into or opting out of 
Very important stuff. Um, Chase, this has been another awesome conversation. Robert, my pleasure, man. Any closing words or if not, maybe you could just tell people where they can find you on the internet. Sure. Uh, no, my closing remarks would be, I hope we can continue this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, they can find me um, on Twitter at Chase the Truth um, or uh, at Impervious AI or Impervious a- uh, dot AI, or they can download Impervious Chat because um, it's a call to action. Impervious is is a it's a mission statement, um, but it's really a call to action. It's an ethos, and um, I would like to see parties, uh, kind of anyone who listens to this, kind of like you know. Uh, tag or ping or message uh, me or Robert on where do you, you know, where do you see cultural Marxism rearing its ugly head now that you're kind of viewing it in this, in this framework, you know, through this lens, um, what's the existential crisis? What's the call to action? What's the exception? What's the interest balancing? Mm. And, um, you know, and start calling them out on it, but most importantly, uh, normalizing, identifying a premise, whether the party's calling for it or where, why they're doing it. And then, like you said, we can be in a better position to incentivize a system where the participants and those that would undermine it um, are deprived of those tools and policy options. They're off the table and they're forced to participate in the agreed upon capacity. Mm. Uh, and in a good way where, you know, they can't just system override without consent because whatever existential dread, they have to persuade you. Yeah. No, it's, it's wonderful. It's a level playing field, right? Which is Thanks, an, an ideal. Uh, Chase, thank you so much. We'll definitely have to do this again. Absolutely. Thanks, dude. Talk soon.